good to be back with, with all of you. Uh, it was definitely good to get away and good to relax. And uh, as hard as this may sound, I did turn my brain off for most of it and just enjoyed being with family. So that was a, that was a wonderful time, but it is definitely good to be back with this family. Um, we're going to continue our series in 2 Corinthians. We are going to be in chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Uh, so two weeks ago, we, we left off with verse 10 in chapter 5. And then last Sunday, uh, Pastor Mario covered a verse that had been in that chunk, 5-5, five, five, but then also a verse that had been earlier in this series in, in chapter 1, um, and really looked at a beautiful truth unpacked in this this letter that Paul wrote, but now we're kind of resuming that motion through the letter, rather, and so we're going to be picking up in verse 11. Uh, if you are able, please stand out of respect for the words of our, our King and our Lord, um, and we will read together. This is chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. You are worthy of our everything. You are worthy of our respect. You are worthy of our honor. You are worthy of our praise. Forgive our stubbornness. Forgive our self-centeredness. May all of this be an offering to you. And may you make it holy. As we continue to worship you, and engaging with your word. Teach us. Make us like Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage, very, very famous verse in this passage. Verse 17, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What does that actually mean? I mean, how many of you... If a stranger or a friend were like, hey, you're a new creation, so like, what, what does that mean? I mean, think of Nicodemus talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, anyone must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how is this physically possible? What's going on? So new creation is one of those phrases that the church has used because it's in the Bible, and Christians know because it's in the Bible and the church uses it. But sometimes I wonder... Can we actually explain what it means to be a new creation? I think this is one of those Christian phrases that can trip us up. Well, yeah, I mean, I, so like I'm new, but I'm still me. Like, do I look differently? Well, are you talking about outward appearance? Are you talking about behavior? I mean, there are people who teach that Christians don't get sick because you're a new creation. 
And so you're a new holy creation and you don't, you don't get sick. Part of your salvation is, you know, a newness of life on this planet that's not affected by things like the flu or the cold. So what does it mean by new creation? This passage lays it out so beautifully and so simply for us. And so we're just going to go through and we're going to look at how God defines being a new creation. What he lays it out as including. And we're going to go through it slightly out of order. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to start with some of the verses that were closer to the end. But when you look at this passage, we see that being a new creation, it means we are given a new eternal standing, which brings with it a new heart, which brings with it a new practical approach to life. And so it's eternal, it's temporary, it's all-encompassing, and it's incredible to behold and to think about and to make sure that we are pursuing this in our capacity as disciples of Christ. So the first thing we see that a new creation is built upon, the foundation of this, is a new eternal standing. Let me reread verses 17 and 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake he made Christ, he made him, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther called the glorious exchange. The Christian's sin is imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness is imputed to the Christian. And now I just used another, well, wait a minute, I wasn't quite sure what new creation meant, and now you're going to use imputation? We're going in the wrong direction. But this is the word that describes what takes place in this glorious exchange. Our sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and that's an exchange. That's a removal and a giving. Listen to what the Bible says about this. This is Leviticus 16. Because to understand, we have said this time and time again, I will never tire of saying this, you cannot understand the Bible independent from itself. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one cohesive work. So to understand New Testament righteousness and imputation, we have to understand Old Testament. We have to understand the law. We have to understand God's requirements for holiness, God's standards of holiness. So in Leviticus 16, God is laying out how do the people receive forgiveness for sins? Who pays the penalty for sin? Sin justly demands a price to be paid. How does this work for God's people? In Leviticus 16, 21 and 22, God says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them, the sins, the iniquity, the, the transgression against God, the transgression against the holiness of the Lord, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The laying on of hands in the Old Testament, if you look at Numbers, if you look at Deuteronomy, the laying on of hands was used to signify the transferal of something. So now, if I sell you my car, if you sell me your car, what? We, we transfer the deed. We sign our piece of... Back in Israel, if, you know, if I would have sold Moses my Honda... I would have laid my hands on Moses' head. I would have said, hey, I'm transferring ownership of this to you. So the laying of hands on the head was a transferal of something. So Aaron, as the high priest, is transferring the sins of Israel onto the sacrificial goat. It's an imputation of the sins onto this goat. What do we see in one of the most famous passages of the Bible, Isaiah 53? Verses 4 and 5 and 11 and 12, speaking of Jesus. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is that sacrificial animal. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb that the sins are laid upon. This is the imputation of our sin onto Christ. Then what happens in this, this exchange? Consider Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me, so Zechariah is receiving a vision for the Lord of the sin of Israel, of the holiness required, of what God does. And this is what he says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's imputation. That is the removal of the filthy garments. That is the removal of the torn, soiled robes. And in exchange for pure robes, beautiful robes, righteous, holy robes, The Bible says it describes our best deeds, our most righteous acts on our own as nothing more than filthy garments. The Lord says, no, Satan, I rebuke you. This is a brand plucked from the fire. You cannot accuse him. I remove the filthy garments. I give him pure garments. This is the laying on of sin on Christ. This is the removal of our filthy robes. This is the placing of clean robes. So what does this mean for us as we consider this eternal standing, this glorious exchange, this imputation of righteousness? Consider Romans 4, starting in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts the righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Consider Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can we approach God on His throne confidently? What happened in the Old Testament? What happened if a priest entered the Holy of Holies, God's mercy seat? God describes the Ark of the Covenant as between the angels that were on the lid. That was His mercy seat where He dealt, where He dwelt to deal mercy to the people of Israel. What happens if a priest entered that presence of the Lord in an unholy, impure manner? Arbaugh. Yeah, that was why a rope was tied around his angle, so they could pull the body out. See, if you came before the presence of the Lord unclean in sin, you died. You can't be in God's presence unholy. You can't be in God's presence clothed in sin. 
So we can only approach God on His throne to ask for help, to find grace, because we do so not clothed in sin. Guys, new creation is a new eternal standing. We stand before the Lord in the righteousness of Christ. Why do we pray? When we say we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Why do we say in the name of Jesus? Uh, that's because that was what my parents did. Because that was what their parents did. Because that was what the pilgrims on the Mayflower, I don't know. No, we pray in the name of Jesus because if we aren't praying in the name of Jesus, we have no right to be before God's throne. This is the imputation of righteousness. And I'm not talking about sinners crying out to the Lord. I mean, think about it. At one point, we all had to pray to God. We all had to confess to the Lord without the righteousness of Christ upon us. We're talking about entering confidently before the presence of the Lord. We're talking about standing before Him eternally justified in a court of law with Satan trying to accuse us on one side and God saying, no, I rebuke you. This is a brand I have plucked from the fire. I have clothed him. I have clothed her, my son, my daughter, in righteousness. I have removed their filthy rags, their filthy garments. This is what it means to be a new creation. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we may what? become the righteousness of Christ. So if somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a new creation? The immediate answer is, I'm eternally justified. In heaven's courts, I am counted right before the Lord. This is who I am in Christ, clothed in the most beautiful, pure robes we can ever fathom. Robes that we cannot make for ourselves. Robes that we cannot put on ourselves. This isn't a simple outfit change. When I go home, you better believe I'm getting into shorts because it's going to be 80 degrees. This isn't that. I can't say, oh, you know what? I'm kind of tired of the robes of sin. I'm going I'm to put on the robes of righteousness now. No, I, I don't have that power. So imputation, new creation is God removing the garment of sin and placing the garment of righteousness on us, which only happens through Christ, nothing else. This is the foundation of your identity as a new creation. It's, it's mind-blowing. I cannot wrap my head around this when I consider the depths of my depravity, when I consider the horrors of my sin when I consider the brokenness and ugliness of who I am apart from Christ, I cannot fathom standing before the Lord clean, being able to walk into His throne room with confidence. But I know I can because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me as a new creation, and my sin was laid on His head, and He bore it for me. That's new creation. And then with new creation, as a new creation, as someone with new eternal standing, what else did we see in this passage? Tucked in there in verse 12. How are we to boast? What are we to boast of? I thought we weren't supposed to boast. What? Now I'm confused. What's it say in verse 12? We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what is in the heart. See, as a new creation, as someone with new eternal standing, as someone clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that brings with it a new heart. A new heart. Uh, doesn't the Bible say the heart is deceitful above all things? Don't trust it. Yeah? What does the Bible also say about the new heart? About the heart that God gives His people? Consider these verses. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You consider that what is on your heart 
can be acceptable and pleasing to God? Not just acceptable, like, okay, fine, I'll accept it, but no. God says, I'm pleased with that. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. What now? Same go prosperity? Nope. Because what's that verse start with? Delight yourself in the Lord. So if your heart's delight is the Lord and His holiness, if your heart's delight is conformity to Christ, do we really think that's something God won't grant? Do we really think that's something God won't do in His people, in His children, if their heart's delight is in Him and for His things and for His kingdom? Well, what does God say about it? Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 90.12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, a heart that delights in the Lord, delights in the Lord's things, delights in right things, delights in a proper perspective, delights in wisdom, delights in the Lord's wisdom, delights in purity, delights in the love of God. What does he say? What does the Lord say through David's pen in Psalm 119.10? David writes, With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. With my whole heart, I seek you. What does God say happens when we do that? Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord speaking to His people through Jeremiah, says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I mean, this is what God says. When you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. When the delight of your heart is me, I will give you that desire. Because He gives us a new heart. What does He say in Ezekiel? In Ezekiel, He says, I will remove the heart of stone from My people and I will give them a heart of flesh. Part of our sanctification, remember a few weeks ago we were preaching through 2 Corinthians 3 earlier in the series. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where it talks about as we behold the face of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Sanctification, becoming like Christ. So part of sanctification, part of becoming like Christ, is God also teaching us what to love, teaching us what to crave, teaching us what to desire, growing that within us, changing all of us. We've asked this question before, to what degree are we affected by sin? To every degree. Every part of me is affected by sin. Every part of my being, my existence. It's not like sin is just mental and not physical. It's not like it's just physical and not emotional. It's not like sin just affects my finances but not my relationships. Sin doesn't affect the way I work. It just affects the way I hang out with. No, like sin affects everything. We are wholly, W-H, not H-O, W-H-O-L-L-Y, we are wholly affected by sin, which means when God says in Thessalonians, this is my will for you, your sanctification, when God says, I desire that you would be wholly sanctified, W-H, what He's saying to us is to the degree that you are affected by sin, that is the degree to which you are now going to be sanctified. Everything. It's not like, okay, I'll be sanctified at work, but not at home. I'll be sanctified with my finances, but not with my hobbies. No. My whole heart, my whole being, my whole existence is given to you. You have taken out the heart of stone. You have given me a heart of flesh. So part of sanctification is our heart being transformed and molded to be like the heart of Christ, to desire what Christ desires, to love what Christ loves. This is the new heart that we have as believers. So we have to ask ourselves, what do I crave? What do I seek? God says, you'll find me when you seek after me with your whole heart. So are we seeking after him with our whole heart? I give God 95%. He's not worthy of the last five. He's worthy of the first 51, but not the last 49. Seek after Him with your whole heart. This is who we are as a new creation. We are no longer burdened by a heart of stone. We are no longer the dry bones in the valley. We are no longer dead. 
We are alive with a new heart. Consider Matthew 6. Not all of, I mean, consider all of Matthew chapter 6, but we're going to look at a few verses. 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus goes on and he gives examples of what this looks like as it relates to prayer, as it relates to fasting. And then he says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we're considering this idea of a new creation with a new heart, and we're wondering, does my heart reflect the heart of Christ? Just ask yourself, what do you treasure? Where are you most invested? Where have you poured your best into? Is it into the things of the Lord? Is it into His people, His church, His mission, His kingdom, His worship? I mean, why do you... I've asked this so many times. But we need to think about this. Why are you here this morning? This is America. This is a free country. I did not show up at your house and drag you here this morning. You're all adults, most of you. Some of you maybe physically were dragged here. Hopefully not. I know your families. But you're here because you chose to be. So did you choose to be with the right heart? Or did you choose to be here out of obligation? Did you choose to be here out of duty? Did you choose to be here out of, well, that's what you do on a Sunday? Where is your treasure? Is your treasure in the worship of the Lord? Is your treasure in delighting in His law? Is your treasure in advancing His kingdom? Is your treasure in taking personal ownership of His mission? Or is it, look, man, wrap up soon. I want to be home for lunch. Guys, what do we treasure? Do we treasure stability? Do we treasure ease? Do we treasure a lack of discomfort? Do we treasure protection? Do we treasure never feeling unsure? Never intimidated by a conversation? I don't like to think I might not be able to answer a question. That wouldn't be good for my ego, and I treasure my ego, so I'm going to avoid any conversations that might put me in a spot where I have to say, I don't know. Let me get back to you. What do we treasure? That will tell us where our heart is. As a new creation, we have been given a new heart that should determine the way we live. Matthew 6 talks about this new, this, this, this new perspective for the people, right? This new way of thinking, this new way of approaching life to show a heart of righteousness. See, that new way of thinking directly affects the way we live. I mean, think about it. In Matthew 6, he talks about praying in public. He talks about the physical act of praying. This is not theoretical. He talks about the physical act of fasting. This is not theoretical. This is not hypothetical. This is the practicalities of life. And he's saying this is the righteous way to do it. Consider a verse we're going to get to in a few more weeks. 2 Corinthians 9.7 Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you are giving under compulsion, if you are giving reluctantly... Go read Malachi and do yourself a favor and stop giving. Because God has no interest in half-hearted offerings. He has interest in the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord judges not as we judge by outward appearance, but by the heart. So as a new creation, with new eternal standing, we are given this new heart, and then this new heart should directly, unavoidably impact the way we practically live. 
If sanctification, if our process of becoming more like Jesus does not change the way we actually live, we are missing the point. If it's just entirely a mental exercise, then we have completely lost sight of who we are called to be. Listen to these verses, starting with this passage we just read in 2 Corinthians. This is verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us, not suggests to us, not offers options, controls us. Why? So that we might live for Him. Imputation, that that exchange leads to this. Remember our series on 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Consider Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. Imputation, the exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness should drive us to live for Him. I mean, consider the implications of rejecting that, of treating that as something casual, something optional. Hey, Jesus, I know you died for me. I know you paid the price that I could not. I know you gave me what I could never earn on my own. And I'm going to live for you in all these ways except for this one, because this one's my favorite. Thanks for the gift. I'm going to hold on to this one for me. Does that really reflect a heart that understands the magnitude of what Christ did for us? He bore our sins so that we might live for righteousness. So that we might count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being like Him in life and in death. Proverbs 16, 2-3, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It begins with that heart, but then it translates into commit your work to the Lord. Commit your practical life to the Lord. Commit your day-to-day to the Lord. Your boss is not your ultimate boss, whoever you report to. You're working for Jesus. Psalm 24, may He grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. Psalm 21, 1-2. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. David committed everything to the Lord. He committed his life to the Lord. David was not without sin. David was not perfect. None of us are. But when you read through the Psalms, as we've already read through so many, what do we see again and again? His delight is, his desire is, his request is. I mean, he says you have granted your servant his requests, his desires. What are some of the things David requests and desires in the Psalms? He says, Lord, grant me that I would dwell in your house forever. Lord, I long for you like the deer longs for the water. Let me enter your temple. Let me praise you. Let me be with the people praising you. Let me live a life that pleases you. This is David's heart and desire. Every aspect of his life was committed to Christ. When the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Israel, when it's returned to its rightful place after it's been gone for so long, what is David doing in the processional? He is dancing with all his might before the Lord. 
And his own wife is ashamed of him. His wife is embarrassed of his behavior. She says, how dare you undignify yourself like that? And David says, I will undignify myself further if that means celebrating the Lord. I can't raise my hands in church. What if the person next to me sees and thinks I'm weird? We're not the frozen chosen. Our concern cannot be on, well, what if my neighbor thinks I'm weird because I constantly ask him how I can pray for him? What if my coworkers think I'm weird because I'm constantly bringing up Scripture? I mean, like, our lives, our practical lives, our practical work must be committed to the Lord. Because we are a new creation with new eternal standing who has been given a new heart. And in light of all of that, we recognize that we have a new approach. We have a new calling. We have a new purpose in life. And that is to glorify Christ in everything. Consider Psalm 48. So we've looked at these verses. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. You have given him his heart's desire. What is it? David says, Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The essence of who I am is given to you. I delight to do your will. David writes, God granted me these desires. Think of verse 11 in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, remember, therefore, built on everything that precedes it. So we looked at in the first part of 1 Corinthians 5, an eternal perspective. This earth is not our own. This earth is not our home. So therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord. This is not scared fear. I don't go in the snake house at zoos. Mm -mm. I don't like snakes. It's a fear. I'm not going in there. This is not that. This is reverence. This is awe. This is trembling before God. This is a recognition of His holiness. This is not I'm scared of the Lord. This is I recognize how perfectly holy He is and I stand in awe of you. I am blown away by your majesty. This is the fear of the Lord. This is, I am so unbelievably amazed at you that you have my everything. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Doesn't that sound great? Who wants to be part of a church that knows peace and is being built up? And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Psalm 145, 19. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. When the church walked in the fear of the Lord, it had peace and multiplied. Why? Because God grants the desires of the hearts that delight in Him, the hearts that fear Him. So before we start looking at the church today, the big picture church today, and lamenting all of the problems outside, lamenting what society does, lamenting what politicians do, lamenting what culture does, is it possible that the church is where it is today in a situation of strife and turmoil, not growing because we have lost sight of the fear of the Lord. We are so concerned with outside. We are so concerned with external. And God says, no, when my church delights in me, when my church desires me, when my church fears me, it has peace, it multiplies, it has the heart's desires granted. So if we start to say, why isn't the church doing better? Maybe we have to look in the mirror and say, it's because we don't fear the Lord. I don't want this church to be the most popular church Mansfield has ever seen. I don't want this church to be the biggest church Mansfield has ever seen. I want this church to be the holiest church Mansfield has ever seen. 
I don't want Mansfield to be the biggest churches in the country, the most popular churches in the country. I want Mansfield to have the holiest churches in the country. And if that is not your heart's desire, then you need to repent and ask the Lord to give you a desire for holiness. To give you a heart that is burdened with fear of Him, with awe and reverence. It says the Lord is a consuming fire, so let us offer Him worship with fear and reverence. If you are not consumed by the fire, then ask yourself why you're pretending to be a log. We are called new creations. It is a gift that we cannot begin to describe. It is a joy and a privilege that we do not possibly earn on our own. It is a, it is a treasure that we have no right to claim on our own. But we are new creations. We have been given a new heart. And in that, we have been given a new approach and purpose. And it must be a pursuit, a relentless, never-ending pursuit of Christ and His kingdom and His mission and conformity to His character. I do not want to... I'm quoting someone else, and I have no idea who I'm quoting. I was listening to a podcast. This was like four or five years ago. And they were quoting one very popular Christian person. And he said, you know, I want to walk across the finish line, like, smiling. And, con you know, and he was talking about, you know, Christians need to be happier and more positive. He's like, you know, I want to stroll across the finish line, like, joyfully, right? And there was an older pastor on the podcast who was responding to that. And he said, brother, no. I don't want to stroll across the finish line. I want to drag my limp, broken, bruised, bleeding body across the finish line knowing that I left everything on the race course. That's where we need to be. It needs to be a consuming fire because this is who we are. We're new creations with a new heart. The old has died. It's gone. It's dead and buried. So before you start to say, I can't do this, Sam, I'm exhausted just watching you pace back and forth. I couldn't possibly have a shirt that says, I'm excited. Yes, you could because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So before you say, I couldn't possibly share the gospel with someone, yes, you could because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I couldn't do what Billy Graham did. No, you could do more than what Billy Graham did because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and it's not up to you. Church, we're a new creation. We're new hearts. We are new approaches to life. Let's go get it. Let's get after it. Because this is who we are in Christ. So what does it look like? It's really quite simple. I've said this before, God's, God's not complicated. He doesn't make his word perplexing. What does living for Christ, like Christ, look like? Practically speaking, this is great. I understand the theology. What does it look like day to day? Read Galatians 5. If ever you're wondering about the practicalities of Christian life, if you're ever confused about the practicalities of Christian life, remember General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Hey, what should I practically do as a Christian? General Electric Power Company. I'm going to go read those four letters. Galatians 5 beautifully lays out the practicalities of Christian life. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You want to know what to do practically? Ask yourself, is this what Jesus would do in this situation? Boss gives me an assignment that's beneath me. Coworker says something about me. Family member says something about me. Neighbor does something. What would Jesus do in this situation? I'm created in the likeness of God. So let's imagine God is here in this situation. What would he do? Practically. Respond like Jesus. You're created in his likeness. Philippians 4, 8-9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, he starts with, think about these things. Give your mind to these things. Focus on these things. Consume yourself with these things. And then he says, and practice them. You think football teams just practice plays, and then when they get out there on Sunday, the coach, right, like the Browns, well, maybe the Browns coordinator is like, I don't know, make something happen. Sorry, I had to. No, right? What are the coordinators doing on the sideline? They're saying, hey, remember the play we've drilled over and over and over again? Remember the things we've practiced? Okay, now put them into application. So don't just think about what is honorable. Practice it. Don't just think about what is lovely and commendable. Practice it. Commendable, that word, commendation. Before you do something practically, will this earn me a heavenly commendation? What is excellent? Do you work excellently? Do you neighbor excellently? Do you family relate excellently? Do you treat strangers excellently? Think about it, practice it. Pure, unadulterated, undiluted, untampered with, unmessed with. Do you speak purely? Do you love purely? Think about it, practice it, practically. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I mean, GEPC lays out practicalities left and right. So we've got to take personal ownership for I am a new creation with new eternal standing, given a new heart, with a new approach to life, and I will be relentless in my desire to look like Christ. I will be relentless in my desire to live like Christ. I will run this race with perseverance. I will set aside the sin that so easily entangles. I will consider the cloud of witnesses I am surrounded by, and I will run with perseverance. I am a new creation. I'm going to live like it. We're called to fear God. We're called to delight in Him. We're called to give Him our everything. So the question is not, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? The question's a lot more brutal. Am I actually doing what I'm supposed to as a Christian? Am I actually living like I'm supposed to as a Christian? It's not, what, do I, what, what am I supposed to love as a Christian? God's explicitly clear on that. The real question is, do I love what I'm supposed to? Do I give myself to what I'm supposed to? Do I treasure what I'm supposed to? We're new creations, friends. Sin has no claim on us. We're not slaves to it. It's not our master. Satan stands to accuse Joshua the high priest, and God says, no, I rebuke you. Because that is a brand I have plucked. That is someone I have clothed in righteousness. You don't get to accuse him. Hebrews says that Jesus is always interceding for us. We don't get to be accused by Satan. So before you listen to that whisper of this is just who you are, this is who you were, this is who you'll always be, you're nothing more than a victim. You're nothing more than a hothead. You're nothing more than lazy. You're nothing more than apathetic. You were that kid who flunked out of school. You're not capable of this. You're beat down. You're trodden. Everyone's against... No! Those accusations have no weight in heaven's courtrooms because I am a new creation imputed with the righteousness of Christ, given a heart after His, called to live like Him because I was remade in His likeness. And that is true of everyone who is a believer. That is who you are. Let us live like it. As we consider these things this week, let's apply the Acts model as we pray. We're going to read three chapters. We're going to read Psalm 37, we're going to read Isaiah 58, and we're going to read Romans 6. We're going to continue to work on memorizing, internalizing Acts 4.13. Acts 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and recognized that they were common, uneducated men, they realized they had been with Jesus. I mean, how great would it be if people were like, whoa, you're a pretty uneducated commoner, and there's something different about you. 
And we said, yeah, I'm a new creation. Made in the likeness of Christ. You're right, I am common. You're right, I am uneducated. But I am made in the likeness of Christ. So we're going to read those chapters. We're going to continue to internalize, to know, to be molded by Acts 4.13. And then for the application, you know, sometimes we offer reflection questions. But this week, I'm going to give you a very specific application. I want you to think of three areas of your life. What is one way you could die to self at home this week? What is one way, and I live alone, okay, I'm talking about your neighborhood, right? Like where you live, what is one way you could die to self where you live this week? Where you work. I'm retired. You watch your grandkids? Cool, that's your work, right? Like, so where you live, what is one way you could die to self this week? Where you work, I don't watch grandkids, do you volunteer? Like, Wherever you spend your weekdays, you spend them somewhere. Because I'm here on Monday through Thursday and I don't see you. So I know you're not here. You're somewhere Monday through Friday. So wherever you spend Monday through Friday, how could you die to self there? And then considering your church family, considering your brothers and sisters in Christ, considering the body the Holy Spirit has deliberately assembled, what is one way you could die to self for everyone else in this room right now? What is one way you could die to self in the different spheres of your life? I'm willing to bet that all of you are already thinking or most of you are already thinking of things that are pricking your conscience. If you're not, simple prayer. Lord, teach me. Let's die to self this week. Let's live for Christ this week. And then, spoiler alert, let's do it next week too. Please join me in prayer. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.